0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P
1: dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions Supply.
0: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses
1: are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website
0: for details. Hello, I'm Scott Soschnik, and I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is
2: the Sportacast.
0: Novi Williams, we have a visitor. This this is our first visitor, right? Yeah, first guest, Michael McCann, legal expert
2: extraordinaire. And what a time to have you on, Michael. A, a, A tremendous hearing today as we record this on Wednesday in front of the Supreme Court, the NCAA defending... Essentially, the entire model of college sports. Uh, give us a quick background on, on on how we got here and what your thoughts were from listening to the, the roughly one hour hearing today. Wait sure. a minute, we
0: got wait a minute, Mike. We got to set this up because you know, just say, oh, we have Mike on and there's a SCOTUS case. Am I exaggerating? Is it too much to say that this is a landmark case that could absolutely just dictate the future of college sports? Is that too strong or is that accurate?
1: No, it's accurate, because this case is fundamentally about colleges joining hands to limit what college athletes get. That's a foundational principle of amateurism. And it came under fire today in the Supreme Court. The case traces back to the Ninth Circuit's ruling out in California, where where the lawsuit was about whether or not colleges can join hands to limit education-related expenses. So things like internships and musical instruments, computer fees, things like that. But the justices today really pivoted to a broader concept where a number of the more conservative justices basically said, we don't understand the system. Why is it that the labor has no capacity to bargain? Why is it that the NCAA is trying to ask for an exemption from antitrust law when every other business is subject to it. So it was it was pretty striking, the language that was used and the tone. I'm sure the NCAA was not expecting that.
0: From what I can glean from your Twitter feed, the justices, more than one, kept bringing up the concept of salaries of coaches and executives. What's the importance of that?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the key thing there, Scott, is that, and Justice Thomas really highlighted this, If college athletes aren't paid, then the money that they're generating is going somewhere and is going, as he said, to college coaches, that their salaries have ballooned, to use the word that he chose, while college athletes have not seen a significant increase in compensation. So he feels like, why is it that amateurism only applies to the athlete, but not the coaches or the administrators or the facilities?
0: Because you're the best in the business, I'm going to ask you to do it simply. Can you break it down simply, what does the NCAA allege? What is their response as to why the system should remain status quo?
1: Their response is that there's the revered tradition of college sports in this country, that it has qualities that are unique to college sports in the NCAA. Essentially, it's almost like a circular argument that we're different because we're different. And they hope that that has some suasion on the justices, that it's true that colleges are competing businesses, but it's different in the context of sports because amateurism provides athletes opportunities to be educated, get full rides to school, that once this system is is uh, changed in a way that makes it less appealing to fans, the college athlete will suffer. And that, they kept dwelling on that, that... One of the reasons why people like college sports is that the players are amateurs. But the counter to that is that what's an amateur? Does an amateur mean you can't get paid anything? Does it mean you can only get paid a certain amount? And that came up today.
2: One of the things that I've found, uh, to be honest, I there's a lot about what you just said that I don't find particularly compelling. It it doesn't seem like the thing that people care about about college sports is amateurism. The NCAA has also contended that there's a competitive balance that would be shifted if their rules were changed. I would argue that there is already a a massive competitive imbalance in college sports. One another thing that the NCAA has argued, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there needs to be a governing body of some sort. Someone needs to set the rules for college sports and that they are essentially the best Person or the best entity to do that. It sounded like Justice Roberts at one point was kind of asking questions along those same lines, essentially about if not for the NCAA, who is the body that steps in and, and, and organizes and, and sets rules for college sports? Yeah,
1: that came up several times. And it came up when uh, also when Justice Sotomayor said this parade of horribles, it was the phrase that she used. <laughs> what would happen if the NCAA? wasn't making rules. She said, why not have conferences make those rules? And Seth Waxman, the attorney for the NCAA said, well, it's the prisoner's dilemma that essentially there would be a race to the bottom if there's no national set of rules that conferences would, because they're competing with each other, create rules that dismantle amateurism. Of, of course, the response to that is, so what? That That's what a free market is. That That's how competition works. That if amateurism is only being propelled up by the NCAA acting as a national entity, that's not that strong of an argument.
2: Is he, I was going to ask, is that a legal defense that what, what what exists may be bad, but it would be worse if what exists didn't exist? That it, seems like a, it doesn't seem like a real stable legal defense, in my opinion.
1: It, it has some elements. So under antitrust law, there's the pro-competitive argument. that, and One pro-competitive argument is if you, the court, get rid of our ability to conspire, the whole system will collapse. That even though we are acting in an anti-competitive way, the net result is that we sustain a system that has certain value. And, of course, the counter-argument, Evan, as you note, is that it's not that most, the most persuasive argument, but the NCAA would argue if, amateur, if college athletes start getting paid here and there, there will be more litigation, and eventually the system will tumble.
0: Mike, is the NCAA a straw man in all of this in that it really is a representative body for the member institutions? So we're talking athletic directors and university presidents. They don't often seem to get the heat. All I, all I ever hear and see is people pointing the finger of blame at the NCAA, but you don't hear a lot of the school administrators and university presidents on the hook for, for this system.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great point. And it is a membership organization. And the NCAA and Mark Embert would say, we only implement the wishes of our members. And those members like the system. They like limitations on what college athletes get. And it does distract a bit from the fact that the member schools are the the entities that are pushing this system. And it is, the NCAA sort of takes the heat. Nobody likes the NCAA, right? They're constantly criticized. Mark Emmert is ridiculed all the time. Uh, Maybe it's one of the reasons why he's paid so much is that he takes the heat. And so that college presidents can sort of be in the background, do their fundraising and all of that without getting criticized for supporting the system.
0: Do you remember Gordon Gee when he was president of Ohio State when he had his famous comment? Like, somebody asked about the football team and uh, whether or not he was going to fire the coach. And Jim Tressel. Jim Tressel. Was it Jim Tressel at the time? Yeah. A- and Gordon Gee's response was, Me fire him. I hope he doesn't fire me. I mean, <laughs> I thought that was the most poignant comment in the history of college sports in that it really showed where the power at the universities resides.
2: Yeah.
1: And we know at many, was it? Over 40 uh, and over forty states, the highest paid public em- employee is a coach of either the basketball or football team. And similarly, athletic directors make a lot more than most other people on campus. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is the dynamic that exists. And it, it, this goes back to the oral argument before the Supreme Court, where Seth Waxman on behalf of the NCAA was talking about, the revered tradition of college sports. Well, Justice Kavanaugh said, this was really important. He said, the stuff that you're talking about is from a different era. Mm. And and that, you know, that was pretty striking that, that the way things have been is not a justification for keeping things the way they are.
0: That was something Mike Bloomberg used to say. Mike Bloomberg used to say that all the time. The worst reason to do something is because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah,
2: Mike Michael, we've talked a lot on this show in the past few months, of course, about name, image, and likeness, the NIL laws, the the ability for athletes to to be able to market themselves. That's not directly what was on trial in front of SCOTUS today, but it is certainly related. Do you think there's any kind of longer term ramification? Anything change about the, the the push to let athletes market themselves in the wake of what happened today?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I, I think the NCAA probably regrets. Now, petitioning the Supreme Court to review the case, because based Mm. on what the justices uh, asked in the questions, it seems like they're going to rule against the NCAA. So there's an element of regret there. And secondly, I imagine because of that, they might want to resolve NIL sooner rather than later, because if the Supreme Court comes back with a ruling in June or July that basically says amateurism is troubled, it has all of these flaws, it's going to be a lot harder for the NCAA to justify NIL restrictions. So it
2: could propel
1: them to act quicker.
2: You mentioned it right there, uh, kind of the trying to read the tea leaves of the, of the justices. I feel like before the trial started on Wednesday, all of my Twitter feed was, you know, you you, remember, you can't really judge the way the court is leaning, depending on how the questions that they ask. And then 20 minutes later, the, the hearing starts and everybody seemed to be saying, oh, the NCAA is losing this. Is it going to be nine? Nothing. It does seem like you're saying that, that judging by the way things unfolded on Wednesday, that, that things at least seem to have tilted a little bit more in favor of the uh, of the non NCAA side, yeah, this was a really hostile bench.
1: I've listened to a bunch of Supreme Court oral arguments, and this definitely is up there as one of the most hostile against one side. And it's true, as you noted, reading the tea leaves is a speculative is an exercise in speculation. Maybe Justice Kavanaugh is going to shock us and rule for the NCAA, but the 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 manner in which he constructed his questions was so adversarial, it was almost like he was cross-examining the NCAA. And similarly, Justice Korsuch, Justice Kagan, Justice Thomas, Justice delito that's five votes right there, right? You don't, you don't need any more. I, I do think Ju- Justice Breyer is in favor of the NCAA's position, and maybe Justice Sotomayor. I don't think this is gonna be a unanimous decision, but to me, if I'm counting the votes, based on how they, just the the, the manner in which they, raise these questions, it sure seems like the NCAA is uh, not looking too good.
0: Now We have a clear hierarchy of intelligence on this show, Mike. I mean, if, I know you're your listener, so you know I'm clearly at the bottom, and then Eben is right above me, and now today you are above <laughs> both of us, which is, which is fine by Checks me. I'm happy, to, yeah, I'm happy to play my role. It's, it's really nice. Um, but what would be the harm, and this is maybe a simpleton question, but Please try and answer it if you can, because I would really like to talk to athletic directors and ask them, realistically, with the ability the schools have to generate revenue from myriad points, and that can be media, it can be real estate, it can be boosters, it can be tickets, it can be sponsorship, anything, what would be the harm? What is so difficult about sharing some of the revenue with the players And then perhaps in some sort of collective NIL way, school and student together figure out how to make even more money as a unified front. Am I I being too simplistic in all this? Is there no room for a world where a unified front benefits all? No, I I disagree with the hierarchy that you
1: proposed at the start of your question, but B, I would say... Absolutely not. This wait is, a minute.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'd like to see how you'd reorder that just for just for kicks. <laughs> I,
1: I, everyone's
0: tied. That was, uh, uh, okay. How okay. judicious of you. Yes, Thank exactly. You. Thank funny. you. Very All much. right. Continue, sir.
1: The, yeah. I mean, this is you know, Scott. Look at NIL. Why in 2021 is NIL still a controversy? This is something that should have been resolved. In the 2000s. And that that doesn't even
0: take away money from the universities. That's the ability of a player to say, hey, this pizza joint, this car dealer wants to pay me because I'm famous in this town or nationally like a Trevor Lawrence or Johnny Manziel at the time. What's the big deal if that player goes out there and earns a few bucks? So what?
1: Yeah. And look at what's happening now with the G League. They're getting the top recruits out of basketball. And although that's not true for football, I, I, it seems like the NCAA, by just anchoring to this position and refusing to change, has left itself vulnerable, not only to, other, uh, or to pro sports leagues that are now eyeing the same labor market, but secondly, the fact that they're before the Supreme Court today getting attacked, the fact that members of Congress are proposing pretty sweeping legislation that goes way beyond NIL, this was all avoidable. If they had the foresight to respond really practically. I mean, just just like you said, what's the what's the harm of sharing some of the wealth? It, 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 and often look at the NBA and the Players Association or any of the leagues. It usually leads to everyone making more money when they work together.
0: Evan, do me a favor, since this is your bailiwick, can you just remind the folks who are listening the kind of dollars that we're talking about? You're you're the one that always has the the media contracts and the revenue for the big programs just sort of remind us the size of the 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 bounty that we're talking about.
2: I mean, in the easiest number, it's multiple billions of dollars that athletic departments bring in every year. There are a handful of programs: your Texas's, your Texas A and M's, your Ohio States, your Michigan's that are right around the two hundred million dollar a year uh, mark in revenue, and then it goes it goes down from there. And that doesn't count, you know, all the other. Parts of this business—the the, the millions that that are brought in by advertisers for college football games—we're recording this right in the middle of the the NCAA tournament. That's a that that's a nine hundred million dollar a year contract from CBS and Turner to the NCAA that I wasn't even including really in in the numbers I was giving you. So yeah, there's it's it's not unlimited, but it's it's a huge marketplace, and this is. Kind of exactly the problem that, that Michael has been talking about in those comments by Kavanaugh about it's a different era. the the structure of the NCAA was made for a time when it wasn't a billion dollar industry. when when media companies were not paying, All that money to broadcast games when sponsors were not paying all that money to be on the sideline during football games, when when donors weren't giving $40 million a year to put their name on things and for season tickets, Uh, the enterprise has changed. And in so many ways, it feels like the NCAA has not. Michael, I want to you know push this a little forward a bit. We heard we heard the the, the the oral arguments on Wednesday. Judges will meet on Friday. They'll decide who's going to write the majority in the dissenting opinion. When is it that we hear a response to this and is are we getting a ruling that is in favor of one side or the other? or is there some some nuance in the middle that could actually drag this out for even further?
1: Yeah, we'll find out in June or July as to what the outcome is. I think it will be a divided verdict. I think that there will be a majority in dissenting opinion. I do think this could get dragged out, and I say that for this reason. It's, I, my sense is that they will rule against the NCAA and affirm the Ninth Circuit. But there were some questions about the remedy, specifically that there's a cap of $5,980 uh, that was referenced to by the courts, the lower courts, and several of the justices said that seems sort of arbitrary. So I could see the justices affirming, but also remanding back to Judge Wilkin, the district judge, to redo the remedy. And if that's the case, this case could go on for years.
2: Can I ask a question that's been bothering me about the Supreme Court in, in general? We've been talking about, you've been talking about this case for for six plus years now, it feels like. Why is it that the Supreme Court hearing is one hour long? The idea of distilling this whole thing into a single hour and then raining down the almighty decision feels like it is nowhere near the amount of time necessary for the amount of work that's gone in on both sides, frankly, to this exact idea.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Now, the justices would say we've read hundreds of pages of briefs that are filed we already are familiar with this. And many Supreme Court observers would say they've already made up their mind before the oral argument, so they don't need a long session. But it is striking that everything leads to one hour, a process that has taken uh, since the early 2010s and has involved so many hearings and briefs and just the litany of how long this case has gone on, the fact that it concludes with an hour and and of that time the attorneys are interrupted by the judges i mean this is they don't they don't even really get the full time because they have to answer questions and the judges can can ask long questions that i mean literally has an effect because they're taking up those seconds
0: i mean this with all due respect because i i, I do uh I, I do like the man and i've known him forever but um if you give jeff kessler one question there goes your hour <laughs> he
1: he was concise
0: you <laughs> You better prepare, right?
1: Yeah. And he he also clearly had a few points that he wanted to keep raising. And it was interesting. There was one point
0: where we should say, by the way, we should just let everybody know. Jeff Kessler is the attorney representing the the players, so to speak. Um, He's also outside counsel to a bunch of the professional sports unions.
1: Yeah. He's a phenomenal attorney. One question came up that I thought was interesting because he had to make a tactical decision and it was this. He, Justice Sotomayor said, "Well, are you only asking us to review the ruling below, which was education-related expenses? You're not asking us to talk about the broader implications, you know, coaches' salaries and all of that that came up earlier." And he said, "Yes, I'm only asking about education-related expenses." It's interesting because he could have asked for more, but the danger of doing that is by by asking that he could have been more likely to lose the case. So. He had a clear answer. He was prepared for it. But the, uh, the, the chance of this case being maybe more sweeping isn't going to happen. And
0: I'm going to try to be a little bit smart here. You let me know if, if I achieve my goal or not. But in all of my experience covering collective bargaining, what I've heard from the attorneys is you don't go for everything. You try to get something into the agreement the first time. And then you pry a little bit more, a little bit more, you're much more likely to achieve your ultimate goals slowly than if you go for the whole thing at once.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because some of the justices worried about what you just said, that the way of achieving those goals in this context wouldn't be through bargaining, it would be through litigation. And several of the justices said, if we rule in favor of Alston, aren't we just opening the door to lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit? And, the, and Kessler, of course, said, well, that's, that's essentially, that's how the law works. If there's an antitrust problem, the courts will review it. But it also means that the Alston case is probably just one chapter, like the O'Bannon case. And there are going to be several chapters. And this will likely go on for, for many years.
0: All right, hold on. You mentioned O'Bannon in the case. We need a little full disclosure here. You know Ed O'Bannon.
1: I do. Yeah, I worked with Ed on his book, and we, uh, we know each other very well.
2: Of course, Ed, one of the men who started uh, the push we're on today. And Michael, I think you're right. At, the, at some point, uh, there's going to be something else on top of it. And and we'll, we'll look back on this moment right now and think we were just in the middle. But no matter what, a, a pretty historic moment for college sports in Washington today. Michael McCann, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Mr. McCann. Excellent. Thanks for having
1: me.
2: You've been listening to the Sportacast, the flagship podcast in the Sportico Podcast Network. You can find Michael on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. You can find Scott on Twitter at Sashnik. You can find me on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. You can follow the show at Sportacast and you can download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.